everybody. Oh, wow. You're way more awake than first service. I thought I might have to come out and pinch somebody. It's great to see you all today. We have a lot of new visitors here today. If this is your first time, we want to say a special welcome. My name is Christy Kerr. My husband, Jeff, and I are the pastors here. We're so happy to have you at Homestead. Um, we have been, over the last few weeks, looking in the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying the life of Jesus, and the whole theme has been this idea. Who is this? Because we would see all over scripture when people would encounter Jesus, when they would encounter him, when they would see him do something, very often you'll see the following words. They'll look at each other and say, who is this? Who is this God? He was so unlike what they expected. He was so unlike anything that they knew. And the first thing we talked about was that Jesus was one who had authority, that he would speak to the evil spirits and they would do whatever he said. And then he would speak to the wind and the waves and he could calm the storm. And his disciples would look at each other and go, who is this? Who has this kind of authority in Jesus? And then a couple weeks ago, Jeff talked about that Jesus, the rule breaker, which is very close to Jeff Kerr's heart. Jesus, the rule breaker, because he did things that the, the religious people told him, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be with those people. You shouldn't associate with those people. You shouldn't eat with those people. And Jesus said, hey, I came because the sick are the ones that need a doctor. And so he was not afraid to love people, even though other people would look at him and say it was something he wasn't supposed to do. He was a friend of sinners. And then last week we talked about Jesus had humility. In those days, if you had authority, it meant that you used it to prop yourself up at the expense of others. And you would use it to exploit those beneath you. But Jesus told his disciples, not so with you. If you have authority, then you will leverage yourself for the betterment of others. And even to the point where Jesus said, and I, even the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve others and to lay down my life. He flipped that upside down. They had never seen anybody with authority who served. And they would say to themselves, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And so today we're going to continue on in the book of Mark. We're going to look at chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there. Now, this is the beginning of Holy Week in Scripture, meaning this is the last week of Jesus's life. By Friday, Jesus will have been arrested and crucified on the cross. And by Sunday, he will have risen again. So this week is so important to our faith. So it's good for us to take a look at what events are happening during this week. What do we see Jesus teaching about? What do we see him thinking about? What do we see him doing? And today is Palm Sunday, which is the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. Now, this is significant in a lot of different ways. First of all, Jesus has been performing miracles and signs, and he has gained this huge following of people. And people are starting to believe that he is the Messiah. Now, what does that mean, right? Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke that a Messiah was going to come and rescue the people. They had faced so much opposition and heartache, and God had given them a promise that he was going to send a Messiah to rescue him. And the Old Testament was filled with prophecies and clues as to who this Messiah would be. And they knew those scriptures. They had been watching for him. They had been looking for him. And the Jewish people knew those scriptures to heart, and they had been waiting for this hero to come and rescue them. So at this point, the people were finally putting two and two together and looking at Jesus going, wait a minute, maybe this is our Messiah. Maybe this is the one that we've been waiting for. 
You'll recall until now, he has kept this information close to the chest. When evil spirits would shout out, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. He would tell him to be quiet and would say, it's not time for this information to be revealed. But right now, this day, riding into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is laying all the cards out on the table. Because within all of those prophecies that the Jewish people would have known, the one that they would have known the best is Zechariah 9.9, which says, the Messiah will enter into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. So when Jesus sat upon that colt and rode into the city, he was declaring publicly, yeah, it's me. I am the Messiah. So you can see why the people had the reaction they did, why they were shouting and screaming, why they were waving palm branches, why they were throwing their coats on the ground, because Jesus was essentially saying, the one you've been waiting for is me. This prophecy is filled today. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11. We're going to go through the whole chapter today. It's going to be a little bit of Sunday school. We're going to cover a lot of scripture. We're going to talk a lot of historical things. But I think it's going to help us understand what was in Jesus' heart the last days of his life. So Mark chapter 11, 1 through 10 says this. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the streets, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them. The others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of this procession. And the people all around him were shouting, praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So this moment has set all the things in motion. The veil has been lifted and the people are now saying, this is our Messiah. Now this is a beautiful moment when Jesus is seen for who he really is. But you know what? They didn't fully understand what he had come to do. He didn't just come to save the Jewish people from Rome and from earthly rulers. But he had come to save them from every sin, every bondage, every curse. And it would be done once and for all, for all people, for all time. That's us today. That's what he really came to do. So even though... They understood in part. It was such a huge moment. And today I wanted to take a look at the next few moments of Jesus' life. What happens next? We always hear the story of him coming into the city, but then what, what happens after that? What does he do? And so we're going to look a little further down into Mark 11 today and see what happens next. So let's start by looking at verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So what's going on here? He goes to the temple. It's the end of the day. It says he just kind of looks around, and then he leaves. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal until we see what he does the very next day. 
Verse 12 says this. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So Jesus has this huge moment coming into Jerusalem. He goes over to the temple, looks around, goes back to Bethany, and comes out in the morning and gets mad at a tree. That's what we have so far. Let's keep reading. Okay. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. Verse 20. The next morning, as they passed by that fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Okay, now we have the whole story. So let's see what we can find out what is going on in Jesus' heart and mind in Mark chapter 11. So let's unpack this a bit. Verse 11, after his triumphal entry, Jesus goes to the temple and he looks around and something there makes him very angry. What did he see when he was in the temple? Well, let me tell you a few things that he would have saw. First of all, the Jewish people were required by the Old Testament to bring a sacrifice to the temple to cover their sins. They were to bring a perfect animal, one that had no blemishes, and give it to the priests who would then offer it to God as an atonement for their sins. Now, this had been their practice for years and years and years, all the way back, starting with Moses, and it's laid out in Leviticus how they were supposed to do this. But what was happening in the temple this time where Jesus walked in was corrupt and unfair. So let me explain. The people were required to pay a temple tax at this time of the year for the Passover. And their regular money was not good inside the temple. So they would have had Roman coins. They would have Greek coins. But they would have to go into the temple and pay a temple tax using a temple coin. So their money was no good inside the house. So they would have to come in and they would have to exchange their money to temple coins. And of course, the money changers were charging people an exorbitant amount to change their Greek and Roman money into temple coins. So imagine if you walked in the door of Homestead this morning and someone greeted you at the door and said, that will be $19.95. We do not take cash or American Express, but you can buy some Homestead bucks in order to pay your tax. 
And by the way, we're going to charge you double to buy those homestead books. That's what was going on in the temple. It was very sketchy. It was very sketchy behavior. But that wasn't the only thing that was going on. The people were required to offer these sacrifices, so the temple was filled with animals that could be bought. Now, many people traveled a long way to come to the temple, and so it made sense that instead of dragging your lamb with you on a week-long trip, that you would sell your animal where you're from and then bring the money and buy an animal in the temple. But other times, people would bring their own animals, even if they were local, and it had become common practice that the priests who were responsible to decide if the animal that you brought was pure enough they were notorious for rejecting those animals. And so the people would bring them and they go, no, sorry, that one's got a little spot on it. That one's got a little cut on it. And so they, people would have no choice but to buy the animals being sold in the temple. It's kind of like at the airport. Jeff was at the airport this week and he called me and goes, oh, I just almost got in a fight in line because I bought a sandwich and a Coke. It was $14.95. <laughs> and I said, Okay, he's like, but they get you. He always hates it. That's how they get you. Because there's not, what are you going to do, right? You're there. You're not going to leave. You can't go. This is what was happening. They needed their sacrifice. They needed their animal. And one source that I read this week said that if a dove was 15 cents in the marketplace, when you walked into the temple, you would pay $15 for it. So that's what's going on. In verse 11, Jesus walks into the temple. He looks around. He sees the money changing. He sees the animals. He sees the little old ladies buying a dove with their last money, but paying so much for it. And he gets angry. And that is what we see. But it says that he left because it was late in the day. I think at that moment, Jesus knew what he was going to do the next day, but he was waiting until everybody was there. He was going to come back when it was a full house and let them know how he felt about it. So what in particular bothered Jesus about this scene? Now, of course, we know that Jesus would be bothered by the dishonesty. Of course, we know that Jesus would oppose extortion and cheating people out of their money. But what really got to him this time? Okay, so this is where this really weird story about a fig tree comes in. So let's read that in verses 12 through 14. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf on a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now at glance, this looks like, what a random story to be dropped in to this part. But Jesus is revealing to his disciples the heart of why he's so angry. Jesus was hungry, so he walked to the tree to get some fruit, but it didn't have any fruit, so he cursed it. Now, why would he do this? Was he just really, really, really hungry? No. But here's what I learned as I studied this week. Fig trees are unique in a very particular way. They produce leaves and fruit simultaneously. So whereas some fruit trees will produce the leaves and then later on will produce fruit, fig trees produce the leaves and the fruit at the same time. So when Jesus saw a fig tree with leaves, he assumed there would be fruit. But when he got closer, he discovered that there was no fruit on the tree, only leaves. So now that we know the context of the story, now that we know what Jesus saw in the temple, 
Now that we know what he had been thinking about all night long and what he was just getting ready to do to walk into Jerusalem and knock over the tables, we can figure out what his problem was with this fig tree. It had nothing but leaves. It had no fruit. It looked really, really good on the outside, but it really didn't have anything to offer on the inside. It looked like it would provide something to someone who was hungry. But once he got closer, there was nothing there to satisfy his hunger. It looked good from the outside, but there was emptiness on the inside. And that was what Jesus saw in his father's house when he walked into the temple. He saw a place where people were coming because they were hungry to have a relationship with God. It gave the appearance of being a place that would help them connect to God. And yet those inside the temple weren't actually doing anything to help these people connect with God or see God for who he really was. And the priests and the Sadducees made the temple look like it was doing the right thing, but they didn't really care about those people. It looked good on the outside, but when they got closer, there was nothing there to satisfy the hunger of the people. He was angry at the religious leaders because there was nothing but leaves in the house of God. In Matthew 23, Jesus lays out his frustrations. It's an entire chapter of him talking about how angry he is with these religious leaders. 36 verses that he goes on and on and on. I just picked out three because otherwise we'd be here all day. It says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus hated what he saw in the temple, and he acts on it. He walks in there, knocks over the tables, throws out the money changers, and declares, this is not what my house is about. This is not what my house is about. This is a house of prayer. This is a place where people connect with God. And you turned it into a den of robbers. It's all leaves, no fruit. So what does this action of Jesus teach us today? What does it teach us about our lives and about our church, right? So number one, if you are a follower of God, you cannot have a life that looks good on the outside, but is full of corruption on the inside. It just does not work. It does not work. How tragic if the people in your world know that you go to church and you love God. They know that you love Jesus and they're hungry for something more. And as they come to you knowing that you put your feet in this place every week, and they come to you knowing maybe there's something there that can help me satisfy the hunger in my life, and yet what they find is nothing. Your life is no different than anybody else. How tragic would that be that instead of finding something to help them find God and to satisfy their hunger, instead they would find hypocrisy and greed and self-indulgence. This is a challenge to us to clean out our cups 
Not the outside, folks, the inside. We have got to keep our hearts clean and pure before the Lord. We cannot work on making our leaves look good. We have to look on making our fruit good. Amen? Okay, you're all real, we're listening very seriously. We can't just make our leaves look good. It has to have actual fruit. This can only be done by dedicating our hearts to growing spiritually. Because the reality is this, really, only Jesus knows the condition of your heart today, right? We're all sitting here, we all look pretty good. We look good. We're here. We all look good. I can't tell the condition of your heart right now, but you and Jesus know. You know if you're in relationship with him. You know if you've given him your life. You know. Is your life fully surrendered to Jesus? Are you truly seeking to follow his ways? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to search your heart and life and point out things in your life that are not pleasing to God and then taking the steps of repentance to change those things? Listen, if you are a follower of God, you cannot have a life that looks good on the outside but has corruption on the inside. It does not work. Now, let me say something about this. God is incredibly patient with us. Thank the Lord, right? Everybody say amen. God is incredibly patient with us. He loves us. He wants the very best for us. And scripture tells us that it is his heart that all would come to repentance. Not only that, but it's his kindness that leads us into repentance. So he will be patient with you. As you are sorting through the stuff in your heart, he will be patient with you as you are working out these issues in your heart. But let me be very clear. He will not let you go on forever with this duality in your life. He will not. He's so patient and kind with us that I think sometimes we lack a fear of God, right? And we think we can keep just going on the same way we've been going on. But what we see here is there comes a moment that Jesus comes in and knocks over the tables. There's a moment that he says, okay, that's enough. You know why? Because he's a good father. And he knows when the right moment is to step in and say, okay. Now it's time for some discipline, right? I was horrible at this when my kids were little. I'm like, they're like, okay, one more, one more chance. You get three more chances, guys. And Jeff would be like, oh, why don't you just ground them already? And I'm like, I just want to give them another chance. I really believe they're going to do better. Right? Closer to the heart of God right here. <laughs> but the reality is you all know there comes a moment that you got to knock over the tables and say, enough. You cannot keep going on like this. Something has got to change. Jesus knocked over the tables, not because he's a jerk, because he, but he had said, it's enough of this. I'm a good father, and I know when it's time to say enough. And am I the only person that has the Lord speak to me sometimes? Christy, I'm warning you. I've told you once. I've told you twice. I'm going to get to this part of your heart and your area. You can do it my way or we can do it my way, right? We have to have a heart that is open to the Holy Spirit. We have to keep the posture of, search me, God. What is in my heart? If there's anything in there that is not pleasing to you, please wash it clean. We cannot take this posture that we're going to just keep going on and not think that there's going to come a moment that God is going to come in and knock over the tables. So change now. Repent now. God will get your attention one way or another. 
So my advice is to humble yourself now. Cultivate your fear of the Lord. Cultivate an understanding of how big God is and his ultimate authority in your life. Cultivate that so that you are quick to repent and easy to discipline. So number one, if you're a follower of God, you cannot have a life that looks good on the outside, but is full of corruption on the inside. Number two, God will not tolerate a church that looks good on the inside, outside, but is full of corruption on the inside. God will not tolerate a church that looks good on the outside, but is full of corruption on the inside. Now, this can mean a lot of things to us today, right? That we as a church, we need to be diligent about keeping our focus and our purpose on connecting people to God and not get distracted by all kinds of other things. It can mean that we as a church have to be integrous and honorable in how we deal with our money and our resources and everything God has given us to entrust. This can mean that as a church, we have the fear of God in staying true to his word in a culture that would push us to stray from the teaching of scripture a million different ways. But here's what I really believe the heart of the matter is on this story, on this day, that drives Jesus to act. We have to be a church that loves people. I think the thing that got Jesus' blood boiling was that in all their operations— the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple workers not once thought about the people that were walking through their doors. They got to the point where the institution was the institution and they were carrying on the business of the institution and no longer saw the faces of the people walking through the temple gates. They didn't see the poor widow and what it cost her to bring that mite to buy that dove and her heart to want to honor God. They didn't see her. And they were willing to take advantage of her because they didn't care about her. They watched the people come and go, and yet they never really saw them. But you know what Jesus is like? In Matthew 23 that I read earlier, part of the 36-verse rant about the Pharisees, you know what we see right after that? In verse 37, Moments before Jesus goes and gets on that young donkey and rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, we get a little picture of Jesus right before that moment. And we see him looking over the city of Jerusalem. And it says that he was weeping over the city. It says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus loves Jerusalem. He loves the people in Jerusalem. He's weeping over their pain and misguided religion and the emptiness of their hearts because they've rejected the things of God. He sees their flaws and their sin and their brokenness. Even the fact that they wanted to kill the prophets and stone people just like him. They were not fans of this. He, he even names their brokenness. You want to kill people like me. And yet how I've longed to gather you in my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks and protect you. That is the love of Jesus for the people, and we have to have that heart 
the same heart as Jesus. We cannot be the kind of church that loves God but hates people. It doesn't work. Without the love for people, we will eventually turn into what that temple had become, a place where people were coming in and going out, doing all the right things, looking really good from the outside, all leaves, no fruit. And the only way to combat that is to love people the way Jesus loved people. Here's what I really want. I want when people hear about Homestead Church and they see our leaves and they're like, wow, cool church, nice building. Those people really are kind. Wow, they seem like they're a good family. Wow, they still really seem like they love their community. That when they come here and they actually get to know us and they actually get to be a part of our community, that the reality is better than the rumor. That they don't come in and go, oh, well, that looked good, but not quite what I was expecting on the inside. But that it's even more that they say, wow, these people really care about us. And I came, I'm a hot mess, and I came in as a hot mess, and they still loved me. And they still pointed me to Jesus, and they still cared enough to walk with me when I was still struggling. That's what I want. I want the reality to be greater than the rumor, that we don't just look good from the outside, but when they come in our doors and encounter us on the streets and interact with us in the community, that our love for them is even greater than what they would have anticipated. That our fruit is real. It's real. And they find Jesus, and he satisfies their hunger. Lucy, you can come on up as we wrap up today. Now, this is not easy, right? Sometimes they're so unlovable. Oh, I must be the only one that thinks that. Sometimes the world is real unlovable. And sometimes it's really hard to know, God, I mean, I, I want to stand up for truth, and I want to do this, and th th just, oh, how do I do this? Anybody else find this very complicated? How do we do this? How do we love people the way Christ loved people? Well, as we wrap up these last few verses in Mark 11, Jesus goes into this little ending, which seems super random again when you first read it. Let me read it to you. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe, you will receive it. It will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. At first, this seems like a random thing for Jesus to say. And a lot of times we pull this verse out of context and we think that Jesus is teaching us how to perform big miracles. Or we look at this and think, well, Jesus is telling them how to curse fig trees? Is it, like, is that a thing we need to know? <laughs> right? But it's not what he's talking about. Now that we know the context in the story, Jesus is teaching this whole lesson is for his disciples on how to keep the fruit in your life. How to not just have leaves, but how to have fruit. And so what he says, the first thing he says, is have faith in God. Believe that God can change your heart. He can change the things in you that you have been struggling with for so long. And you're like, Lord, I want to live pure before you, but I keep trying and I keep messing up. 
Have faith in God. He is big enough to help you. And have faith in God that he is big enough to help them. He is big enough to reveal himself to a very hurting and broken world. Have faith in God. Don't give up on loving people. God can give you the love you need to see them and serve them. Believe in God. He's saying, loving people, I get it. It can be like a mountain in front of you that seems impossible. But if you pray and you ask me, I will make that mountain move. I will pour love into your heart that you never imagined you could have for people who disagree, you disagree with on so many levels. I can do this. I can do that kind of miracle. Have faith in God. I will pour love into your heart for them. Don't give up on loving them, even when they're really unlovable. And even if it seems like that mountain is still standing in your way, have faith in God. He can move it. And then he says a second thing. He tells them to forgive. He says, you're going to have to make sure that anger doesn't grow in your heart. You're going to have to forgive people. You're going to have to let go. You're going to have to resist the urge to think you're better than them. You're going to have to resist that urge that thinks they're getting what they deserve. Because guess what? We also deserve it. We just have found the answer. So we have to forgive them. What did Jesus say on the cross? For the very people that killed him, he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That has to be our heart for the world. Have faith in God and keep your heart tender towards other people. Forgive them. Let them, let it go. I've used this analogy before. I think about it a lot. If someone was walking around in here and they were blind, they couldn't see and they kept running into stuff and knocking it over and everything was falling around and they kept running into people, none of us would be like, could you please get your act to stop knocking stuff over, right? We would never, ever do that. Why? Because they're blind. They can't see where they're going. Scripture tells us that those that don't know Christ are like the blind walking around in darkness. So what's our job? to come and grab their hand and say, hey, let me help you. That's our job. We will never do that if we're mad at them. It's just not going to work. So we have to keep the heart of Jesus that loves people. If we don't want to just look good, but we want to be Let's pray. Lord, I just, I'm in awe of your love for me. When I think about how you have lifted me out of a pit and put my feet on solid ground, how you have loved me when I did not deserve it. Father, thank you. We have hearts of gratitude today. We recognize what this week means for us. While we were yet sinners, you came and you died for us. So Lord, we fully give you our hearts today. God, I pray that you would search us, know us, see if there's any offensive way in us. God, we want our lives to not just look good. We want them to be good. We want to bear fruit for your kingdom so that people would see the goodness of God. So, Lord, search us. 
We give you full reign. Show us where we need to change. Show us how we need to wash out the inside of our cup, not just make the outside look good. Lord, we dedicate ourselves as individuals to pursuing the heart of God. And secondly, Lord, we want to be a church that loves people the way that you love people. And Lord, we don't always know how to do this. We're awkward and clunky at it. But I thank you that you tell us in your word that if we have faith in you and your ability to move that mountain out of the way, that you can pour a love into our hearts for other people beyond what we could ever imagine. A patience, a kindness, an understanding, a, a compassion. And that through that, Lord, you would help us bring people to know you. Lord, I pray even this week that there would be people who would come to faith in Christ. I pray there would be people who would come to Easter Sunday and find you. We pray that the lost would be found, God. We want to be about your kingdom business of loving people and seeing them come into faith and relationship with Jesus. Help us to know how to do this. Help us to be a church that loves people. God, we're so grateful for your hand in our lives. I pray blessings on everybody here today, Lord. I pray that this week they would hear your Holy Spirit whisper to them. Areas that need discipline, people that need prayer, and people that you want them to share faith with this week. We thank you so much for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. And everybody said... Amen. We're so glad you came today. Please join us on Friday for Good Friday services. And then Sunday we have our three uh, Easter services. So have a great week. God bless you.